You remember Tim the Toolman Taylor? You remember his, his slogan? Apart from the grunting, of course. It was two words. More power. Right? He always wanted to juice everything up with more power. And the problem was the power always wound up zapping him or frying him or, or in some other way injuring him to humorous effect, of course. But, you know, when you think about power, it really happens in one or two ways when it's engaged, when, it, when, when you see it actually manifesting itself. Either it is going to be just unleashed or it's going to be harnessed. And that's the safer way to do things, I suppose. If you, if you had, say, 10 gallons of gasoline, now I, I've got a little pyro in me, I admit, and I even get a little tingly thinking about this, but if you were just to drop a, a match into a barrel of 10 gallons of gasoline, it would be like, whoosh, it would be a huge flame, it would burn, it would burn quickly, and it would probably bring a lot of attention, especially if you did it here in the city. Uh, and, and yet you could take that same 10 gallons, put it in a car, and drive and drive and drive, maybe 200 miles. I mean, not the way I drive, but some people, they can go very great distances by harnessing that power. And what, what I find interesting is the way the power of the Holy Spirit generally, throughout the Scriptures and in our lives, it's harnessed in an ordinary way, getting us from point A to point B where God is leading us. But right at the beginning here, it's unleashed in a way that brings an awful lot of attention. Now, I am going to apologize right now. I don't know how, I don't know why, but my sermon formed itself with this, this kind of outline that's the annoying asking yourself questions and then answering them thing that your one friend does, right? Where they're like, do I think the Beatles are the best band of all time? Yes. Do I think Abbey Road is their best album? Maybe, maybe not. And you're like, is anyone asking you these questions? No, shut up. But that's just how it came out, so sorry about that. And we begin with obvious questions, context questions, where, who, how, why, etc., etc. And, and we, this is such an important thing, such a pivotal moment in the church's history, the day of Pentecost, that we don't want to overlook anything. Where, where is this happening? Well, we're in Jerusalem as we were last week. Probably, it says in the house, the house, not a house, the house where they were gathered, probably still in the upper room. There's not too many places that can accommodate a large group of people to worship together. They've got one at their disposal. This is probably where they are. And it seems to be the same upper room where Jesus and many of his disciples gathered together for the Last Supper when he instituted Holy Communion. It, we don't know who exactly. It doesn't give us a list like the last passage does. It doesn't give us a number like the last passage. But I would assume that we're dealing, again, with the same group, the whole body. Not only the 12, but also the 120 in all gathered together for this amazing thing to happen. If it were just the apostles, it would very much change the tone of this passage, and it wouldn't make as much sense. When? When is easy. It's on the day of Pentecost, which is not just a Christian Sunday, but actually this is a Jewish holiday. 50 days after Passover. So just as the Lord Jesus uh, instituted Holy Communion and was arrested on Passover and crucified during Passover, we see that his uh, coming of the Holy Spirit happens during a Jewish holiday as well called Pentecost. It's a harvest holiday. We'll talk a little more about it later, but just recognize that this day already has baggage uh, from its history, the teaching, the, the rabbinical tradition around it, and it's already tied to 
other historical events. Just like Passover was already tied to the sacrifice of the spotless lamb for the sins of the many. And Jesus fulfilled that. We see a similar thing here with Pentecost. Then the big question, what? What is going on here? And it's a big question. And people have made much in many different ways of the day of Pentecost and said, therefore, the church must act accordingly. So how we answer this question matters, even for the week-to-week life of the church. First of all, we have to acknowledge that the people involved in this are already believers. They've put their faith in Jesus. They've they've been uh, with him. They've, They've been given the commission. They've seen him ascend. And since then, they've been gathering together for prayer, for the reading and teaching of the word, for the Lord's Supper. They are Christians. They are believers. What happens here then is not a conversion. It's not them becoming followers of Christ. They've been that for some time. No, this is the coming of the Spirit which Jesus had promised over and over again. Even saying, it's good that I go. I know you're sad to see me go, but it's good because then the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Advocate will come. And so it's it's something they've been anticipating. He told them, do not leave Jerusalem until you've received the Spirit. And now ten days later, it's happening. What's happening? They're being filled with the Holy Spirit. And filled is a major key word in the book of Acts, as it was in the book of Luke. Remember, these are, this is part one and part two. Acts is the sequel. He, almost always in Luke, it was so that the, pro- the prophecy or the passage would be fulfilled, that said, and then we see the Old Testament. But often now in the book of Acts, it has to do with being filled with the Spirit, being filled with a desire to serve Him, being filled in other ways. In fact, we even see this, if you have the King James, you'll notice that it says not just when the day of Pentecost came, but when the day of Pentecost was fully come. And I think that's a faithful translation. They were all with one accord in one place. Once again, they're all gathered together. What are they doing? They don't know what they've been doing. They're praying with one passion. They're reading the scriptures. They're they're doing all of these things that go along with being a church of Jesus Christ. Now, when this happens and the Holy Spirit comes, one thing we have to recognize is that this is a man, yes, a man inspired by the Holy Spirit, but a man limited by human language, trying to describe, based on eyewitnesses, a spiritual and supernatural phenomenon in worldly, earthly words that people can understand. And so we don't want to get too caught in the weeds and take things super literalistically. Like, I've heard people think, well, what, what was burning? Was it, was it the nitrogen in the air? And then it stopped. Okay. This is a picture of what was it's the best I can do to describe it to you. Much like the book of Revelation throughout. If I had to describe it, I would say dot, dot, dot. But it matters what human language is chosen. There's a human, a visible, a, a palpable manifestation of a spiritual phenomenon, just like when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism. And what are we told? The Holy Spirit descended on him like... Okay, you're, okay, you know, you just were, okay. The, the, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Now, you often will see pictures where it's a literal dove, and we think he came in the form of a dove. No, this is a, a description of how the Holy Spirit descended. It was, it was lighting on him. He, the Holy Spirit, was lighting on him like a dove, very peacefully. We're not quite sure exactly what this all entails, but there were probably a dozen other similes 
that he could have used to describe that, and they would have all been valid as well. Choosing dove tells us something. A dove already has meaning. A dove has to do with God's promise that he will not destroy the earth again, like the rainbow, with God's provision for people, even who have sinned and rebelled, of God's saving his people, even in the midst of judgment. And so that's what Jesus has come to do this time, and that's the simile that is chosen. So then we get to the why, I guess. Why these pictures? Why, why does, does this coming of the Holy Spirit manifest itself in two ways, seemingly, with wind and with fire. These are the major physical manifestations here. It's not hard to understand the wind. It was only a couple months ago, we were in John chapter 3, we were looking at a very, very famous passage in which Jesus says uh, that, that the Spirit operates much like how the wind comes. You don't see where it comes from, you don't see where it goes, you feel it while it's here. There's a mysterious element. And I explained to you that in the Hebrew tongue and in the Greek tongue, the language of the New Testament, the word for spirit can also mean wind or breath. In Hebrew, it's ruach, and I said you really have to kind of push the air out of your mouth to, to make that word even, ruach. And in the New Testament, it's pneuma. And then even those who spoke Latin who were in this early Christian culture and seeing these things happen, that word spiritus could also mean a wind or a breath. And so it's a natural connection. But, you know, we think in, in John 3 of kind of maybe a lazy breeze, a calm and comforting breeze. This is the Holy Spirit blowing through and he's at work. And that sometimes is the way the Spirit works. We think of Elijah and the still small voice. Sometimes God comes to us when we're broken in a gentle breeze and the Spirit gives us new life and new uh, fresh fire. But in this case, it's not. It's not gentle at all. It's a violent wind. It's a loud and rushing wind. The kind of wind that blows and makes you for a moment question the integrity of your house. Right? You hear the... And then you hear the creaking. Only this wind is inside the house. It is a violent, rushing, discombobulating thing. And I think, you know, we go back all the way to the very beginning and we see this is often a sign of God's presence and God being at work. All the way back to Genesis 1, that's the beginning. Uh, the world was formless and void and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of the deep. We could translate that the wind or the breath of God. The breath of God was skipping along the, the waters of the deep. And he's about to create, to speak into existence all that is. Or, heck, let's just go through the whole Bible chapter by chapter. Genesis 2. Uh, God creates man, right? And, and he creates him out of the dust of the earth. The guy's there. He's got, you know, everything, ears. He's got a heart. He's got kidneys. He's got ten fingers and ten toes. But he's not alive. He's not a living soul, a living being, until God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life the Spirit, into him. And that is very much what's happening here. In fact, we see a perfect picture of it in Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. Remember, prophesied of these bones, they're all, they're all bleached bones, some battle has happened. As he's prophesying, they all come form back together into skeletons, and then sinew and muscle and tendons and then skin and everything, they form back into people, but they're still dead. Then he says, prophesy the breath to them. And then breath enters them and they live. It's a picture of what God does spiritually for us. What God is doing here. 
And, and also, the breath is significant because Jesus has given them a job, and it has a very specific nature. And you combine the, the breath, the wind, the spirit, you combine the breath with the tongue of fire. What, what happens when you combine the breath with the tongue? Well, we speak, right? That's how you speak. You, you push air up your, that's how I speak anyway, uh, up your, your trachea, or is it your trachea? Your voice box, and I've really got the anatomy down. And then your tongue forms words. And that's what is in view here, because when the Holy Spirit fills these people, they begin to speak about what Jesus has done. To fulfill, this is, this is all about fulfilling the command he gave them in verse 8 of chapter 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, there are ways to be witnesses without speaking, but throughout church history, that's been the primary mode of witnessing to Jesus and who he is. So that's why, that's why wind why, why wind and breath and spirit are tied together, but why fire? Well, from the very beginning, fire has been a symbol of God's presence. You remember uh, when Abraham was there for the, the sealing of this covenant, and God appears in the form of a burning torch in a smoldering pot and moves through the halves of the dead animals. There's fire involved. When he appears to Moses, it's in a burning bush. When he leads Israel by night, it is a column of fire. When he descends to Mount Sinai, where Moses has to go up and meet with him, it's with lightning and smoke and fire. We, we find that, that Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire, which is unauthorized kinds of um, sacrifices and worship, and God in fire consumes them. John the Baptist says, I will baptize you with water, yes, but one is coming after me whose uh, sandals I'm not worthy of untying, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's happening even now as we read here. Now, fire creates light. That's also significant, I think. We don't often think about that. Uh, you know, when, when I'm watching a movie and, and it's dark and someone pulls out like a Zippo lighter and flicks it, I think, oh, that's so, that's so quaint. That's so cute that you're doing that. You're making fire to see by. If you turned on a light switch and the fluorescent tubes uh, had fire in them, you'd be like, everybody get out right now. But in their world, if there was light in the darkness... It was fire. It was an oil lamp. It was a campfire. It was a torch. It was a candle of some kind. It, it offered illumination, and the Holy Spirit does that for us as well. In fact, as you read the scriptures, I don't know how many of you were saved as adults, but I, I know that I hear again and again. I used to read the Bible and read the Bible, and then one day I understood. I came to faith. I put my faith in Jesus, repented of my sins. I was born again. I received the Holy Spirit. Now when I read the Bible... It's a whole different thing. There's this level of spiritual comprehension. That's the Holy Spirit illuminating the meaning to us. Fire brings warmth. The Holy Spirit gives us comfort and warmth. It's a dark world. It's also a cold world. And the Holy Spirit brings us that warmth. When he was converted to Christianity, uh, John Wesley wrote that on that day he felt his heart strangely warmed. 
by the news of the gospel. Fire purifies, and throughout the rest of the New Testament, we'll see again and again that come up. The burning away of the dross and purifying who we are until we are more and more and more like Jesus Christ. And you know, both wind and fire in the scriptures are symbols of judgment. So there's that reminder that our God, he's a consuming fire, according to the author of Hebrews. And again and again, fire is used uh, in Jesus' ministry as a picture of that judgment that awaits those who reject Jesus Christ. And you say, when is wind used as a picture of judgment? Well, remember the parable of the threshing floor. Breaking up the wheat and throwing it up into the air and the wind takes away the chaff and it is gathered and burned. So together they're wind and fire. They can, they can be a symbol of judgment as well. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, we'll see that the Holy Spirit is for some people comfort and for others judgment in the, the case of Ananias and Sapphira. So all of this is the background, but the question that comes up, the real hot-button issue is, is this kind of experience normative? If I haven't had a fire burning above my head, tongues of fire, rushing wind, amazing, ecstatic, intense experience, a phenomenal experience, does that mean I lack something? And there are those who would say that it does. But I would say, based on not only this passage, but the whole witness of the New Testament, that that's not the case whatsoever. That this is particularly phenomenal and powerful because it is the initial coming of the third person of the Trinity into our sphere, coming in a way where he can be seen and heard and undoubtedly felt and he's spoken. And maybe they can smell the burning. I, I don't know, but it's, it's an incredibly overwhelming thing. Just as when the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, broke into our sphere. There was an angelic choir, a great company of the heavenly armies, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And the sky was lit up like Ebbets Field, and it was amazing. And yet, most people during Jesus' ministry who approached him or had an encounter with him, encountered him without all that stuff. They were like, that's the guy? Really? All right, I'll see if he can heal me. Just looks like a regular guy. This is the initial coming, the breaking into our world by God the Holy Spirit. And so I would suggest that the way to know that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit is not by some ecstatic experience, but by having received that breath of life that brought you from death into spiritual life with Jesus Christ. You, you can open the Word and know these words of promise and comfort are for you. You can look at what God has been doing in your life. And you can feel the Holy Spirit at work within you, convicting you of sin, guiding you into all truth, granting you wisdom and insight without an ecstatic or intense experience. That you have the fire, that you're set ablaze for the cause of Jesus Christ. Maybe it dies down a bit. Maybe sometimes it's just glowing embers and coals, but when the wind blows back through, when you pray, you find that the flame is fanned and you are again ablaze. What is normative, whenever we see the Holy Spirit received and filling people in the Scriptures, is the speaking is proclaiming 
proclaiming who it is that Jesus is and what he has done. Again, Acts is a sequel to Luke, and Luke begins with this priest who's told, your wife is going to have a son, he's going to be very significant, the forerunner of the Messiah. He doesn't believe. He questions this, and he's struck dumb. And he's told, you won't be able to speak until the baby is born, because of your lack of belief. Now here, at the beginning of Acts, we see the opposite happening. The people are believing, they are receiving, they are gathering together and opening the word in faith. They are obeying, and their tongues are loosened, and they are proclaiming the wondrous things that God has done. They can't not do it. We Think about Jeremiah 20, verse 9. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as if it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I can not. Now, in this case, the speaking happens to be in other tongues, tongues they didn't otherwise know. It's miraculous. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And it makes perfect sense that on this enormous launch day, that this would happen because in God's providence on Pentecost, gathered together from every corner of the empires, plural, we find people who are Jews, proselytes, and God-fearing Gentiles who have come together at the temple. There is a ready-made audience to hear the gospel and take it home with them to the ends of the earth. You ever hear about the soft launch People are doing now. I have a restaurant. I'm going to have a soft grand opening or a soft launch. We'll open it. We'll tell a few friends. Some people will come, but it's not a big deal. Then once we get all the kinks worked out, we got the big grand opening. The old way is just, let's have a grand opening. That's what they're doing here. This is what the Spirit is doing all at once. This is shock and awe. And we find that these, these people who hear the gospel preached in their native tongue are changed by it. And again, the common denominator is the proclaiming of the gospel. Jesus had promised, I will give you power from on high to do just this. He promised when you're dragged before rulers and governors and judges and all these people, don't worry about what you'll say. You're going to have the Holy Spirit and he'll give you the words to say. This past year on, on a Wednesday night, we read that passage and I asked, did anybody have a story about when they had had an opportunity to proclaim Jesus, and they were worried about it. They opened their mouth in obedience, and they proclaimed the gospel. They, they met that person right where they were, and then in, in hindsight, they were like, that wasn't me. That was, that was not me. That was God. I, I could not have. And half the class raised their hand. Not a class. Half those gathered raised their hand. And, and there we see what God is doing here. Yes, they're speaking in tongues, because they are reaching people from all tribes and nations, and they're kicking off a worldwide Jesus movement in earnest. It does not mean that you don't have the Holy Spirit if you don't speak in tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, we're told not all have the gift of tongues. It's not 100% clear he's talking about the exact same gift of tongues, but what is clear is different people have different gifts, and the Holy Spirit also gives us these gifts and builds them up in us. So no, it's not normative to have an insane, intense, ecstatic experience, and without it you're not filled with the Spirit. It's also not normative to have any kind of second experience. I, I got saved, 
and I'm washed in the blood, and I, and, and I belong to Jesus, but I haven't yet received the Holy Spirit or been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We know that's not the case from the Scriptures themselves. We, we read in Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Him. You're not saved. If you're saved, you belong to Him, and you have the Holy Spirit. And so the indwelling of the believer is a one-time thing, just like Pentecost was a one-time thing, and it happens once, and you then have the Spirit in His fullness indwelling you. It's sort of like how the creation of Adam, the first time, it was a weird one, created out of dirt, then the breath of life breathed into his nostrils. The way you and I were born, much different. In fact, we see maybe a mirroring of that Genesis 1 passage. The creation, even the, the breath of God hovering over the, the waters of the deep here. Because something is being created. And, and life is being imparted. In fact, it's even more significant because this is eternal. This church that is being empowered by the Holy Spirit. It also mirrors the giving of the law. Now, this is the background on Pentecost. There's rabbinical texts that link it to the giving of the law on Sinai. When there was a fire and lightning and thunder and smoke up on top of the, the mountain of Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and up went Moses, and he got these tablets with the law written on them. They said that happened on Pentecost. That's what we're, that's what we're uh, remembering here and, and commemorating here. And at Pentecost, we see something different happen. What was promised in the book of uh, Jeremiah 31. A new covenant. Not that old covenant that was written on stone. Not that old covenant that was kept in a chest, that was kept inside a room in the temple that only a priest could go into, only once a year, only with blood. No, the law is written in this covenant on our hearts. And notice that it's not singular, it's plural. On our hearts, we see that, that the tongues of fire came and lighted on each of them. In the Old Covenant, God came on Israel as a whole. There was one, one column of fire. There was one Shekinah glory cloud of, 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 of shimmering presence of God above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. But here, on each of them, not on Israel as an entity, but on each believer, and into each believer, they are all filled with the Spirit. In the Old Testament, yes, people were sometimes filled with God's Spirit. It happened for a season. It happened for a particular task. It happened with special people who were judges or prophets or kings. Here it happens to each of them. It's not something that will be taken away like it was from King Saul. It is a deposit, and it will be seen through to the end. But notice that even though it is individual, it comes when they are gathered together. This is something that happens when they are assembling. The church is the assembly, and they are assembling. They are coming together for worship. They are coming together for the Lord's Supper. They are coming together for the reading of the Word. And that's when the Holy Spirit is poured out. The word that's used here in verse 3... It says, divided and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. It's a word that means divided out or distributed. Same word that Jesus used at the Last Supper when he took the cup 
And he divided it and distributed it out to the disciples and said, here, take and drink. Again, something that represented a very individual and personal relationship of each of them, but it happens in the context of us all gathered together. So what was the result? Well, we find their tongues were loosened so that their the tongues of fire caused them to speak in other tongues. That, that's a key word, obviously, that continues to come up here. But as they, before even Peter starts this amazing Pentecost sermon we'll look at next week, stuff starts to happen. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are these not all Galileans? And how is it that we hear them in our own native tongues? And then there's that list of all the places they came from that Tina did such a beautiful job of reading. So I won't. The result was that many heard and were in awe and wanted to know more about this Jesus and what was happening amongst his followers. And many of these people, and of course the 3,000 who then are going to be saved under Peter's preaching and baptized, many of them leave and go back to their homelands and bring the gospel with them. And I think we see one more mirror here then to the very beginning of the Bible. We see a mirroring of Genesis 11 and the, the story of the Tower of Babel. What happens at the Tower of Babel? Well, everyone who is, uh, they've gotten off the ark, they've begun to multiply, and they say, you know, we're going to stay right here, even though God said not to. We're going to build this thing to heaven, and we're going to glorify ourselves. God says, that's hilarious, and he confuses, confounds their language, so that many different people are speaking many different languages, and they all head out, and they fill the earth. Because of confusion. Because their language has been confounded. Here we see the opposite happening. They've all come together in Jerusalem. And there, the language is unconfounded, unconfused. And everyone is hearing with clarity and understanding what it is that Jesus has done and what it is that is happening with the Holy Spirit. No longer do you have to come to one particular place in one particular city speaking one particular language to worship this God, but His kingdom is going out to the ends of the earth. Along, by the way, the providential Roman highway system. They built it for war machines, and God says, ah, you meant it for evil, but I'm going to use it for good. So they reached the ends of the world without even leaving their house, in a sense. And you know what's amazing is, I mean, we live in a time and a place where we can reach the ends of the world without even leaving our hometown. So very many people have come here as refugees or as immigrants, people from all over the world, and we've got the, the pleasure of, of hosting the Chin Baptist Church from Burma, of having welcomed into our congregation the Nepali Fellowship, and by supporting their ministry, people who are coming from Nepal, Buddhists and Hindus or people of no faith, are being welcomed into their community, invited to their meals, hearing the gospel, and coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being baptized without even leaving Lansing, Michigan. There was a positive reaction on that day as well. In verse 8 we read, And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native tongue? That is an expression of awe. Each of us in, in the Greek, in his own dialectos. They, they were hearing it. They didn't have to struggle. Wait, I, I think I know that language. No, this is my very own language. It's like they're speaking directly to me. 
So yeah, there's a positive response, but there's also a negative response. And that's how the passage ends. Others mocking said, they're filled with much wine. Wrote them right off. Last week we were reminded by that whole Judas scenario in the passage that sometimes there will be a rejection of the message of Jesus. Even Jesus himself was rejected many a time, and it should not discourage us or cause us to stop working for the kingdom. We should expect it, rather. Jesus said in John 15, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So there will be those who accept you and those who reject you. These people are encountering undeniable evidence of something supernatural and going, eh, you're drunk. They looked at Jesus and heard his teaching and saw his miracles. And many of them said, he's a glutton and a drunkard. You're drunk too. They, they said he has a demon. He's in league with Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And that's how he casts out demons. People will cling on to anything if they don't want to believe. That should not discourage us. This is another theme that will come up again and again throughout the book of Acts. Many will reject Jesus. We must continue to be faithful. In fact, if no one rejects what you say and everyone's happy with every word you speak about God, you've not been faithful. Luke 6, Jesus said, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If you've been mocked because you've shared the gospel, you've tried to bring the words of life to someone And you thought, man, Jesus was just mocked. I feel sort of responsible for that. I feel guilty. Remember, this happened to the apostles. It happened from the very beginning. It does not mean that you're not following the Holy Spirit. In fact, maybe to them, they heard those words and it sounded like nonsense. Perhaps those were the ones who had ears but did not comprehend that Jesus spoke of when he was speaking of his parables. 2 Corinthians 2 tells us to the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And to some of these people, the gospel sounded like death, and it sounded like nonsense, and so they mocked them. They must be drunk. Others said, wait a minute, these are Galileans? They're looking for a category to put them in. So it's not, it's convenient, I don't have to listen to you anymore. Galileans are a little backwards, a little backwoods, especially if you are in Jerusalem and you are very cosmopolitan and sophisticated. Wouldn't expect them to be speaking many, many different languages. I mean, this is normal. Have you went to, anybody ever been to Omer? It's kind of where I grew up in Bay City. Omer is the dinkiest little town in the world. If you went there, you would be surprised to hear people speaking nine different languages. You'd say, something strange is going on here. And something strange indeed is, but aren't they just Galileans? Later on, it'll be pointed out, aren't they just uneducated men? Today, people might label us with, you're just a Bible thumper. Thumper, you're just a, you're, I heard the other day someone said, isn't that guy like a born again? Just derisively, to write someone off. And that will happen as well. But despite that, we find the church and the gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit breaking barriers. Breaking linguistic barriers and ethnic barriers and, and cultural barriers. And it's something the church continues to do. This is one thing that our movement does well, I think. In the American Baptist Churches USA, did you know there's not one majority ethnic group? Isn't it strange? Today, in this day and age, people tend to kind of come together by their sameness. That's something that we do well. What we need to do better, I think, is proclaiming this gospel loud and clear without worry of offending. 
knowing that many will mock and reject. To, to seek out unity without uniformity. And this can happen. Going out into different cultures without demanding, oh yeah, you've got to be just like us, saying, no, no, Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me. Follow Him. Repent and believe. This isn't happening nearly as much as we would like. There are very few places in the world that people point to these days and say, there is revival right now. We're living in a kind of middle ground between great revivals. And perhaps the one reason, not the only reason, but one reason in many cases that there isn't great revival, that this stuff isn't happening, the pouring out, the proclaiming, is because many people sitting in pews don't have the Holy Spirit because they haven't put their faith in Jesus. Perhaps we need to see a revival within the church before it spills out beyond. Or perhaps those who do have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them haven't been being filled. What on earth do you mean by that, Zach? Well, if you'll indulge me for just a few more minutes, I want to flip over to Ephesians 5. Because in Ephesians 5, we are commanded, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Don't loophole it at your barbecues tomorrow and get drunk on beer and think you're okay. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a command. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, Pentecost was a one-time event. Yes, the Holy Spirit indwelling you was a one-time thing that doesn't have to be repeated. There's no second experience we're pushing for. But being filled is an ongoing thing. And we are commanded to do it. It's not an active thing. It doesn't say fill yourself up with the Holy Spirit. It's passive. Be being filled, we might say. But it's also continuous, so continually be filled. Keep being filled by the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk on alcohol, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same distinction we see on Pentecost, isn't it? They're drunk on much wine. And they say, no, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's nine in the morning. What do you think of us? Alcohol greatly influences what people do so that they do things they never would have otherwise. In a different direction, the Holy Spirit, when we are filled with the Spirit, influences us to behave in ways that we otherwise wouldn't have, which glorify God and bring about His purpose. Keep being filled. If you are a believer, the Spirit indwells you in all His fullness, but you may be holding back from being filled. This word plerao, filling up, it means often in the Scriptures to be overwhelmed with emotion. We'll read that the people were filled with sadness, or that the disciples were filled with sorrow, or the synagogue was filled with wrath. Overwhelmed with an emotion. You know how sometimes you're sort of sad, but there's still some good stuff going on. It's a balance inside. But when you're filled with sadness, it's just all sad. He says, don't, don't let yourself be filled. Give yourself over to alcohol or to whatever it would be. Whatever your drug of choice is, whether it's sex or, or, or whether it's power or whether it's avarice, give yourself over. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yearning for Him, not this other stuff. Hungering and thirsting for Him. Give yourself over. I'm tempted to go back to the beginning and say make sure your gas tank, your gas can is topped up. But that would be a difficulty because... We're not talking about that sort of infilling, the, the indwelling. That's already done, like I said. We're all already topped off by the Holy Spirit. 
We all have him indwelling us in his fullness. No, rather, going back to the picture of the wind. Make sure your sails are full of that wind. That wind that pushes you in the direction that God would have you go. Now, you turn yourself so that you, your sails are full, not hanging and not sort of puttering along, but that you are being powered, not by your own ideas or, or strength or will or the desires of your flesh, but by the Spirit in the way that God would have you go. The Spirit of God carrying us along. Carrying us along to where He has ordained us to be. So what does this look like? That's the last question I'm going to annoyingly ask and then answer. Well, it looks like us, like the disciples, declaring the wonders of God. What has he done? How can, how can I not declare them? The Puritans used to combine Jeremiah that we read there, the, the, the fire in the bones, with 1 Corinthians 9 and say, Thy word was as a burning fire shut up in my bones. Yea, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. I'm going to explode if I don't open my mouth and speak the wonders of God. And sometimes you don't feel like that, and it's not because you're not in filled with the Spirit. Not necessarily. It could be that you haven't been being filled with the Spirit. That, that you have been keeping your sails at, at perpendicular to the wind, saying, I, I want to do my own thing for a while. And the Holy Spirit within us, the fire and the wind, they will convict us over time. But while we are in this moment looking for revival, why would we not say, Lord, my fire's dying down a little bit. My, my fire's not like it was when I first came to Christ, or not like it was after I, I first came back from that revival or that camp experience, or, or when I was in college and I was part of that intervarsity group. Lord, blow that wind. Not, not a little breeze, that violent, loud, roaring wind through my soul. Fan the flame so that I will be ablaze for you. So that I too can say, your word is a fire burning, shut up in my bones. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of the coming of the Spirit. And Lord, we thank you that we, we can trust that we too have received that same Spirit. A Spirit who is for us not only a deposit of things to come, but Lord, empowering us, in illuminating your word, enlightening us, Lord, giving us strength and boldness, helping us to overcome fear, convicting us of sin, turning us away from darkness and toward light, and Lord, propelling us along, propelling us like, like the wind in our sails, like, like the breath of God, the wind of God hovering over the waters of the deep, pushing us along, and Lord, we pray that if we have come to a stop, if our, if our fires have begun to die out, we will return to you knowing that that Holy Spirit within us is the God who is a consuming fire, is the God who led Israel around as a column, a pillar of fire, who was a burning bush before Moses, a blazing torch before Abraham, and Lord, is within us. Lord, let us not doubt what you can accomplish in us today. In your holy name we pray. Amen.